Welcome to Think Orphan, the podcast for orphan excellence. Real talk with real people navigating the global orphan crisis. Welcome back to the Think Orphan podcast. My name is Brandon Stiver, and it is a joy and an honor to be uh, with all of you in episode 201. We have made it over the hump. Uh, it is summertime, and uh, we got a lot of stuff going on, people coming, people going. And uh, along with that, I am uh, flying solo today. Our uh, podcast founder and close friend, Phil Dark, is uh, out and about. And uh, today we're doing a little different. Um, today we are able to connect with a, a new friend to me within the space, but somebody that's been uh, practicing for quite some years. Uh, we got Simon Njoroge on the show today. Uh, Simon's a great guy. He has worked with Transform Alliance Africa. He's worked with Hope and Homes for Children, Child and Family Focus. Um, just a, a great guy. And uh, he was actually traveling through uh, the Seattle-Tacoma area where One Million Home has an office here. So we were able to actually record this live. So uh, shout out to everybody that is uh, doing their summer travels this summer too. If you ever find yourself in the Tacoma area, please do reach out and hit us up. We love connecting with people. And uh, I'll say this on behalf of Phil, uh, but if you're in the Sacramento area, you should hit him up. I'm sure he'd love to see you. But uh, we're going to get into this uh, great uh conversation that I was able to have with Simon, uh, where we get to talk about adoption within Kenya and we get to talk about what care reform looks like in different African contexts and, and just able to get into a lot of different stuff with Simon. So uh, we're excited to, to jump into this show and, and thank you for being with us. Well, I am very excited today to be uh, joined in studio for the first time. Uh, a, a new friend within this space. Uh, so Simon Njoroge, did I say that? I said that right, yeah? Yeah. yeah. I'm from, Ta- I, you know, I lived in Tanzania long enough. I can do all right with African names. Um, Simon, welcome to the Think Orphan Podcast. Thank you so much, Brandon, for having me. Yeah, well, this is fun, man. Uh, we don't, we normally are recording over Zoom and, and you happening to be in the Puget Sound area uh, allows us this, but you know, I know you have a lot of friends within this space, including people that we've had on the show before. Um, but for those people that maybe uh, don't know you, uh, can you just introduce yourself to our audience? You know, tell us a little bit about you, your family, and and the work that you've done within orphan care. Uh, thank you so much. Um, as Brandon has already said, my name is Simon, and I'm from Kenya. Um, I've got a wife and two kids. Uh, they're back home and. Uh, I must also say it's, it's such a, a fantastic coincidence that I found myself in the Seattle area and Brendan is around and someone from very far becomes the person who does the recording live. So that's awesome. Uh, so that said, um, uh, when it comes to, to, to work and, and working around children, um, one, I'm an, an adoptee. So that kind of is where the, the whole journey began and uh but uh so but since then i've worked for several organizations i've worked for child and family focus kenya as the advocacy officer and at some point i was doubling up as well as the administrator of transform alliance africa uh uh, the organization in kenya was an advocacy organization uh, advocating for family-based care for children 
And Transform Alliance Africa was a larger coalition of organizations working in several countries uh, in Africa uh, around the same agenda. So basically, that's my 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 interaction and uh, whatever I've had with uh, with Carryform. Uh, that said, uh, on the adoption side, um, I founded the first adoptees uh, support group in Kenya. Been running for a couple of years now. Uh, and then also uh, me and some colleagues of mine also founded an organization called Jabali Foundation. Uh, Jabali is um, a more adoption-oriented organization whose objective is to provide support services to adoptive families before and after adoption. Uh, and also to create awareness and advocacy and policy issues. So those are the kind of things that we handle and also um, I mean, support for adoptive families, that includes both parents and adoptees as well. So that's basically me and uh, what I do. Yeah, no, that's really is when you and I got the chance to talk the other day, um, you know, having worked in East Africa for some time and having this conversation around adoption, you know, it looks different from one context to the next. And what you were sharing as far as your own experience as an adoptee, um, and the work of Jabali Foundation is just is just really remarkable. And, you know, as you were saying, as far as some of the other work, you know, that you've done, including with Transform Alliance Africa, um, shout out to our friends there. You know, you were with them for 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 several years. And, you know, for for me, we're big on collaboration. We're all about interagency stuff. We're all about how can we work together? And, and I know that that's um, what's going on at TAA as well. You know, while you're not there anymore, can you just share with us a little bit about um, about that work and what interagency collaboration really looks like for TAA or just kind of your own thoughts on why that's important? Um, Transform Alliance Africa by itself is, is a collaborative effort in that uh, we have these organizations working in different countries uh, doing the same thing and there's a lot they can learn and support each other. So instead of each one of them working in isolation in their own countries, the idea of Transform Alliance Africa was to bring these people together into an umbrella platform where they can share good practice, uh, they can support each other, they can learn from each other, right? Yeah. And so by itself, it was uh, an entity formed out of the realization that when you work together, then you work better, you work more efficiently, you don't have to, 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 to keep recycling ideas, you don't have to, to keep reinventing the wheel. Right. So uh, so basically, it meant that too. And, and this is not just to transform Alliance Africa, but basically my, my, my understanding of why interagency collaboration is important. And, and, and I want to give, to see how, to explain that, I would like to explain how it looks like if that is not happening. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and this is what has been happening in most of our countries. Where we have uh, government-run institutions, right? Very few of them. Sometimes none. Like in my country, Kenya, the government only runs uh, juvenile justice centers. Not residential care in the real context of residential care. Right. And so, then on the other hand, we have private entities, churches, individuals running uh, residential care centers. Right. 
the government is not a, does not have a clue of what is going on here. Mm-hmm. These people, because the government does not seem to care what they do, they also don't want the government because we have been doing what we have been doing without you. So why should you come and interfere with us now? Sure, sure. And so you have a scenario where you have two systems that are parallel to each other mm-hmm. running, right? And they are either counterproductive or sometimes completely working in opposite directions. Mm-hmm. So nothing happens. And so, by, by just that example, it's clear that uh, everyone has to work with everyone. Mm-hmm. You have to work with government agencies, you have to work with, uh, with, with local organizations, you have to work with communities, you have to work with, uh, with, the, with Christian organizations, with unchristian organizations. Mm-hmm. You have to work even with organizations and agencies that are not necessarily care reform oriented. Sure. But yeah. then they have some elements of their work mm-hmm. Right. That adds to our agenda, and so because of that, you, if you do it alone, you can only touch a tiny bit of it. Right. If you want to get the whole thing done and make it sustainable, then everyone has to work with right. everyone, whether whether or not you agree hundred percent on where you're going. Right. Yeah. Because often people don't agree. Right. We agree on some issue, but not everything. Right. Yeah. And I think that that raises an important uh, consideration, you know, when when we talk about uh, different views, different organizations, different scopes of work, there is inevitably going to be differences. But what I hear you saying is find those things that you do agree on and build together something that you both foresee. You know, one of the things that I think about, you know, within care reform and promoting family based care you know, I talk a lot with organizations as far as mission statement and vision statement. And, um, you know, one of the one of the things around mission statements is that's what we do. But then with the vision statements, that's what we see. And often what I see is multiple organizations will have the same vision statement. And often, you know, within family based organizations, they'll say we envision, you know, a world where every kid grows up with a healthy, loving, caring family, whatever adjectives they throw in there, right? So it's so it's one of those things where actually when we have a shared vision as multiple different agencies, you know, similar in many regards with Transform Alliance Africa, you're coming around a singular vision that we want to transform the way that care happens, you know, in sub-Saharan Africa or really all of Africa, I suppose. So I, I just love that. And, and you know, within that your time there at transform alliance what were some of the things that you guys were able to um complete some of the things that you guys were able to do that kind of you know you you saw fruit from that from that collaboration what did that what did that uh what 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 did that produce that collaboration you know during your guys's during your time there but then obviously the the alliance continues to move forward uh one uh i must mention that I was there right at the beginning, right? Yeah. So a lot of the work we did during those years were more of laying down the foundation and structures. But that said, we, we, for example, in Kenya, we were able to form the Alternative Care Association around that time, uh, which brought together quite a good number of organizations, Christian and non-Christian, and uh, one platform, and we started working towards one vision. So and uh, around the same time, Uganda was able to achieve the same uh, uh, in their country. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, those that was one of our key pillars. The first step is to build 
at once. Right. Yeah. Even before you start doing what you do, you think you want to do, bring together people, come together with others. Because that way you realize, for example, your programming is doing something that someone else is doing. Right. So why not do something else that is missing? Sure. But you can't know who is doing what unless you're not engaging with them. Right. So for us, our very first step was that. For yeah. most of the countries, that was the, 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 the first uh, thing that needed to be done right. uh, in order to, first of all, understand the terrain well. Who is doing what? Who can we work with? Where can they work? So that's basically the most important thing when you want to right. engage in any agenda. Right. But that said, I would want to mention something we were talking about, about people not agreeing 100%. The way I look at it, I see it, uh, I see the vision as a, as a map, mm. as a jigsaw map with mm-hmm. so many pieces. Sure. For you to complete it, you need to bring and fit together all those pieces. Mm-hmm. And there's a reason why they are not very well shaped. Right. Yeah, yeah, that's <laughs> yeah. true. Yeah. So <laughs> you have to play around with them until you get the right fit. Yeah. Once you have that all complete, then you have the machinery, the, the, the resources, the, everything you need to accomplish whatever you want. Right. So it's never supposed to be everyone agrees with everyone. Sure, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's just supposed to be finding ways of uh, maximizing our mutual uh, our mutual points of understanding right yeah. yeah and the funny thing is is you're you know using that metaphor of a jigsaw you know is sometimes you do come across those people or those agencies where you can tell that they're shaped a little funny uh, you know so to speak but uh, but it's all about making sure that we uh, find our place you know within that greater within that greater puzzle, you know, uh, to build off of that, uh, that analogy, you know, that bigger puzzle of making sure that kids are best cared for, that kids are safe and that kids have an opportunity to grow up, uh, within a family. So as you have engaged with these different agencies and, you know, I would just encourage people, you know, we haven't talked about transform Alliance Africa really on the podcast before. Um, but if you're engaged in, you know, uh, Africa, I would, I would encourage you to go check out their website, you know, from your time there, engaging with some of these different organizations what are some of the similarities what are some of the differences you know there are of course faith-based organizations in there there's non-faith-based organizations in there there's countries and you know there's countries represented from east africa west africa you know north africa you know kind of across the board you know what are some of the similarities and differences with family-based care and care reform when you look across these different countries you know that that you've seen whether from your time at taa or or just kind of in general and then really what are also some of the challenges you know that organizations are doing you know or, or overcoming um, in terms of challenges one of the bigger challenges is always there's no data there's no research on the problem there's nothing mm-hmm. and so often the not uh, the solutions are based on what would expect the problem to be mm-hmm. interesting so in a lot of these countries they don't even know the number of residential cases they have in their countries right so if you don't even know the number it means you don't even know what is going on there so you don't know exactly the nature of the problem you are dealing with right uh, and i think that for me is a, is, is a and unless we find a way around that then we'll end up with solutions that we think 
mm-hmm. are the right solutions for the problem we think is a problem right not the problem that we are actually trying to solve right and then that is something that cuts across most of these countries sure um, another problem that I would think challenge that cuts across this country this is an interesting one because it's not so much about these countries but, but it's about what I would call uh, induced demand mm. uh, because we have a scenario where resources are, are, are flowing into these countries uh, for childcare right mm-hmm. and these resources seem to be flowing quite well mm-hmm, mm-hmm. so what do you think will happen when you create supply of finance yeah <laughs> then the, yeah. The, the, the demand for what that is gonna get will go up right yeah there's a corresponding demand yeah and yes. so and so because of that and yes a lot of these countries are countries that are uh, less developed and so the living standards are a bit lower so once these resources flow, one day the resource themselves, the cash itself, mm-hmm. right? That's part of the demand that the, the induced demand that you're doing. Two, you then build a facility there that looks outstanding in the neighborhood, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. right? Yeah. What have you created there? An attraction, right? Yeah, right. And so the the challenge with that problem is that. Um, Finances are needed to run these programs. Definitely, you can't run them without. But the same finances are creating the problem that you're trying to solve. Right. So unless um, these finances are somehow regulated, mm-hmm. you you always have that problem. And and in my thinking, even if you were to have foster care, for example, you still face the same problem. Right. Because as long as there is finances to for that system it will demand to sustain itself yeah yeah that, uh, i mean I, i'm glad you bring that up simon it, it reminds me of a conversation i was having yesterday with some colleagues at akisa who are a part of our community of practice and working in uganda and uh, it was actually interesting to kind of hear where care reform is at right now in uganda um and actually the way that there is financial incentive even within the government system for kids to be in care because if there's a care order where the kid is being placed in a residential facility even if they've been recruited right out of their own families out of their own villages which of course we see if a care order is placed then that gives the probation officer an opportunity to bring in money this is as our colleagues was explaining it to me and then so that's kind of like one potential government piece i do obviously we also recognize that a lot of these orphanages within sub-saharan africa are operating outside of the law altogether and they're unregistered so um, the government may not be benefiting financially but somebody but the orphanage operators might be and where is that money coming from well maybe that money is coming from tourists or maybe that money is coming from some other source outside but we have to address the financial system and you're right i totally agree and see that as well where this is one of those issues that just cuts across all of these different agencies all these different contexts and countries um, unless we can actually start to solve that multi-billion dollar industry around kids and orphanages, there's really, uh, you know, we're going to be really uh, challenged. You know, one of the things that I kind of want to jump into as well, you know, on the more solutions front um, is, is adoption. 
Now, um, adoption is something that you know very intricately, both as an adoptee, but also as somebody that um, is working with adoptive families and adoptees in Kenya. Um, you know, when you were sharing with me last week uh, as we grabbed coffee, uh, one of the some of the things that just really jumped out to me was was the uh, was the network that you guys have developed within Kenya around adoptive families. I, I feel like that is really extraordinary because you don't see that in a lot of African contexts um, with, you know, Kenyans adopting Kenyans and then connecting with one another and, and building that. Can you just share a little bit about, first of all, what you guys do at Jabali Foundation and um, yeah, and, and what adoption looks like in Kenya? Thank you so much. Um, one, uh, you know, when it comes to having this network around adoption, parents, adoptees, uh, practitioners, and people interested in adoption. Uh, I, I think for this, fact, most of the, of the accolades uh, go to a lady called Grace, uh, who is my colleague. Um, Grace was the first chairperson of the Adoptive Family Association of Kenya. And uh, she has done quite a phenomenal job on that. And uh, I mean, by the time she was leaving, uh, I mean, she had done quite some, some good work in bringing people together and all that. So I would really want to uh, give her that. I know, of course, I've been there, but she has been the, the face of yeah. the movement and she has done pretty well in doing that. Yeah, it's awesome. Yeah, so that said, um, yeah, I happen to have, you know, as you said, uh, an intimate, whatever with adoption, being an adoptee myself. But I must confess, adoption is one of those subjects that I, my, my thinking around it sometimes even conflict with myself. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> one, um, uh, in my thinking is that, um, Adoption by itself is disruptive, mm. and uh, if it can be avoided, then it's, it would rather be avoided. Uh, that said, if you were to think about it from a pragmatic point of view, then a practical point of view, as it stands today, somehow we, we need it. Right. Yeah. Whether we agree with it, whether we say it's 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 uh, it comes with its own fair share uh, challenges, whether we say it's traumatic or whatever, the fact of the matter is that there are some categories of children right now whose only way out is adoption. Right. They yeah. may be a very small category, but what is important is they, they may be few in number, but they happen to represent the most vulnerable. Mm. Yeah. There will be children with special needs, right? There will be older children. There will be sibling groups. Right. In a country like mine, there will be boys. Mm. Interesting, yeah. Right? Mm -hmm. And so if, if, if you completely rule out adoption, then these kids uh, are going to spend all their childhood in residential care. Right. And uh, for, for that reason, I think domestic adoption is something that as per now we need if in future we will get to a point where families can take care of everyone and everyone is okay right. well and good yeah but yeah. for now we are where we are right and and, and, and for me the the point is that these children who would benefit from adoption are the most vulnerable mm. 
mm-hmm. are the ones most likely to spend all their childhood in institutional care. Right. Should we want that to happen to them? Yeah. That's the question. And so for, for that reason, uh, we need to, to, to really think about uh, domestic adoption in the context of care reforms. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's, a, it's a topic that is touched on but often than not, it never quite uh, quite gets on the agenda. It's always hovering around there, around there. But first, I feel like it never quite gets into the agenda the way it should be. Right. I understand the reason is because majority of children don't need it. But as I said, those who need it are the most vulnerable amongst those children. Yeah. Yeah, and and I think that it's important to to have that sober understanding around adoption. Um, you know, I'm an adoptive parent as well, adopted in East Africa, um, the prospects of, you know, our son making it into, uh, into a family was pretty slim. Um, and I'll be sensitive. He's actually not far from us as we record. Um, but, uh, it is a sad reality. Um, that family separation is real, um, that kids growing up in orphanages or on the streets, those things really happen. And um, it is it is best if a kid can grow up within their family of origin whenever that is you know safe and healthy and possible. And the truth is most kids can, right? Even when we talk about you know the millions of kids that are in orphanages, um, the the reality is, um, you know, most of them could reunify back with family, and and if given the proper support and the and the proper processes take place, they could. Um, but when we talk about alternative family care, we are talking about uh, a fam- an alternative family to the kid's you know origin, right? Um, and one of those ways, especially if we want to pursue permanency for children, where they're not bouncing around foster care, which unfortunately is what we see often here in the states, right? We don't, we haven't built our large, you know, um, uh, alternative care apparatus on residential care here. We have built it around family, but unfortunately, when kids don't get permanency, um, they can bounce around foster care, which is also detrimental, of course, to the kids' well-being. Um, but you know, given the situation that we're in, adoption is necessary. Um, so I, I really appreciate, you know, and and what I love about what you guys are doing because there there's formal processes there's informal processes right sometimes we have you know probably the most prevalent form of foster care and you can correct me if i'm wrong simon the most prevalent form of foster care in sub-saharan africa seems to be informal foster care right these often these are not going through the legal system and in a way adoption might be almost akin to that if if it's kind of like a permanent you know placement for that child but what you guys are doing in Kenya is it's viable, it's legal, it's permanent placement within, you know, within adoption. So what have you kind of learned, you know, in working in that space that maybe you could share with others that are thinking, you know, we want to reunify kids, we want to preserve vulnerable families, but there are going to be a handful, like you said, those kids with special needs, you know, older children, boys, potentially sibling sets, um, what what could you share, you know, with people listening to this podcast of some of your guys' lessons learned, you know, working in that legal framework and, you know, with real communities on the ground in Kenya? What does that look like for you guys and what have you learned? Yeah, thank you. Um, 
uh, first of all, I want to clarify something. Um, yes, uh, legal adoption numbers have quite been going up uh, lately, that's for sure. But, but the landscape is a little bit still tilted. I mean, um, if for example, if you look at the guys who are adopted before the 2000s, when we go, we go the new act, the Children's Act in 2001, a lot of the guys who are adopted prior to that, most of the adoptions were not legal, mm. or they were partially legal. Okay. Uh-huh. And uh, sometimes I'm even surprised because mine and my sister's were, were completed to the end. My sister was adopted in 1979, but it was done. Hmm. But a lot of the other guys, for example, the ones we, we have in our, in our group, the older guys, mm-hmm. some of them have funny documents that you can't even understand. Some don't have anything. Some don't even know. So a, a lot of the early adoptions were mostly informal. Mm-hmm. As to how that exactly happened, I don't know. Right. But there was something that was going on in that direction. Thus, even today, a lot of that happens. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and some, some of it even happens in the public limelight. For example, we have the deputy president adopting a girl. It's, it's not legalized. We have Interesting. one of the governor for Nairobi, governor for Nairobi adopting a boy. Not legalized, but it's in the public domain. Interesting. So there is still now, even now, there is still uh, some of that informal adoption going on. No, that said, uh, you asked about what I would tell someone who wants to. Uh, I mean, for the past couple of years, uh, adoption has quite changed. I mean, when I first began, maybe in the 2010, 2011 there, um, adoption was a subject that was never discussed a lot in public. Mm-hmm. Uh, like, I didn't know anyone or anything. I only knew my, my siblings. Right. In people who were adopted. I knew a few couple of others in the village and that, but not much. But it was a subject that was never talked about at all. But in the last decade, um, there has been a lot of conversations around adoption. Um, of course, I remember, I think it was in 2012, 2012, the first time I think I went on air and, and uh, you know, I'm an adoptee and it's all. And I still remember the reaction I got from people. Sure, yeah. Uh, some very close to me, uh, some friends, some I don't know. Right. And then the reaction could tell exactly where we were at that point in terms of uh, mm. even talking about it. Right. Because I remember some of them were not okay with me talking about that and they would ask why, because we don't talk about that. Mm-hmm. Others were, oh my goodness, I didn't know. Right. Others were, oh, you mean even I was adopted? So there was a whole mixture mm. of reactions. But of course, there was a pushback against that conversation but looking back now when i look at the situation now it's way different uh, we have adoption uh, panels on tvs interviews on newspapers and magazines we have adoptees who are speaking up i'm not in kenya but if you want to have an adoptee 
comes to current event, you will get one. Right. Because guys are beginning to come up as we as we proceed. And so the, the space has opened up. Uh, but I also think there has been an element of the moratorium on inter- inter-country adoption. I think it had an impact on domestic adoptions because mm-hmm. uh, here you have more normal international adoptions. So agencies have to really focus on domestic adoptions to mm-hmm. be able to, to kind of survive. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so there, there was a, an incentive for, right. for them. I know it for everyone working within that space. There was an incentive for them to create more awareness, to engage more, to, mm-hmm. you know, and, and I think that could have uh, played that all to a certain extent as the situation we are today. Yeah. 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 No, I mean, it's, it's, it's interesting because there is always this industry component, you know, around these care settings and, uh, you know, that's not, you know, I, I'm an imperfect person <laughs> by far you know, it's not the reason people like you or me get into this space, but we have to recognize that there is an economic piece for sure, even when it comes to adoption, right? And and it's interesting because, you know, as we talk about, you know, the, the rising at the Hague Convention, um, ways that that has slowed inter-country adoption, when we look at certain countries that have closed up, you know, because of poor practice, because of child trafficking in some instances, because of um, lies that were told to birth families, like all this really terrible stuff that you hear about intercountry adoption. Um, and therefore, you know, we've had international, you know, things go into place. We've had some national governments close down. Um, that that um, movement within the care systems um, has an effect in other places. So sometimes that means there's less orphanages. Sometimes in this regard, it means that domestic adoption actually upticks. That doesn't mean that the that the industry, you know, again, to kind of use that word, which I know probably is going to grate people a little the wrong way, but it's but it's a reality um, that that the domestic ad, uh, adoption, you know, industry is actually going to step into that space and and hopefully what it results in you know if we can cross our fingers and pray um hopefully what that results in is those most vulnerable children that we were talking about at the top um those kids that otherwise would be left separated from family hopefully it creates a pathway for those kids to make it into family and hopefully it doesn't create other incentives that are um that are adverse, right? Either for children or for communities. Um, so just really appreciate the nuance that you bring to this, Simon. You know, um, I just kind of want to even ask a little bit, you know, as, as you, you mentioned some of the awareness, you mentioned some adoptees that they're having their voices raised within Kenya now, which is wonderful. We need to see that type of uh, participation and engagement. Um, what is the, how would you describe the general Kenyan population's, you know, view of adoption? Is that something that, you know, you, you kind of mentioned a moment ago, it was kind of like when it was brought up, people didn't really talk about it that much. I mean, what's kind of the view, you know, um, how is Jabali, you know, foundation specifically operating in that space? You know, is there any stigma involved? Like what, what is kind of the general uh, community's view on adoption and, and how do you guys operate within that space to normalize, um, but also to make sure that nuances are, are considered as well? Uh, one, uh, I would say the perception about adoption is pretty diverse. Mm. 
um, different communities have different perspectives around it. For example, there are there are, there are some communities that value so much uh, blood kinship. Yeah. And so, for such communities, adoption tends to be a little bit. Uh, they, they don't quite agree with it. Mm-hmm. But but I would say, by and large, uh, and I don't think this is a surprise. You would expect people in urban areas uh, who are educated uh, mostly will be open-minded, and the idea of adoption doesn't seem that far-fetched. Right. And so. I would imagine urban areas uh, the, the, the perceptions are good uh, in, in the country in certain places it's a difficult subject to approach um, yeah yeah there's some and then what, what is interesting is that um, for example in one of the communities a lot of the babies who are given out for adoption uh, that come from a certain community because of what they call taboo babies. If mm. a child is born out of a relationship by, I think, people from the same clan or something, then that mm. child is a taboo, and so those children are given away for adoption. Interesting. But what is interesting is that, uh, so so there is a lot of children that come out of that place for adoption. They cannot be adopted there mm-hmm. because the other family knows why this right. child yeah, was yeah, given yeah. up. But then what is interesting about these communities as well, you find they also happen to have the strongest kinship networks. Mm. So the children who remain there, often they're not uh, are well taken care of. Mm. But then for them, adoption is, is scary because they may think the child also has some background that is not good mm. as the same way they do it. And so the, 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 the landscape is diverse. It depends on the demographic you're talking to. Sure. As I said, the educated people, people in urban areas, younger people, uh, they, they are more receptive towards uh, the idea of adoption. So, but I think generally, uh, and, and I think this is a balance that we have not found in terms of engaging people. It's it's one thing to engage people and tell them what adoption is and what needs to be done and all that. But often than not, adoption has some sides to it that basically get left out mm. when you're talking about adoption to people who you look as potential takers of adoption because if you tell them something they get scared mm. and so there is often a yeah. tendency that it's it's sugar-coated yeah mm-hmm. and uh, and so parents get into it sometimes not really knowing what they're getting into sure and they only start to realize what they got themselves into when they're in right Right, and so one of the things that we are looking forward to is to giving people every piece of information that they need even before they make the decision. Right, because when you do that, then that person gets into the process when they are psychologically prepared mm-hmm. as to what is coming. Yeah, when if it's something that may require resources, they start thinking about how that will be found. Yeah. Otherwise, if you just give them the rosy side of the story and you don't tell them, okay, look, uh, this child that you'll be, uh, the potential child that you'll be adopting is a child that was abandoned somewhere. Right. So this is a child who has gone through trauma. 
So this child may have some issues here and there. Mm-hmm. So if you are not told these things, if you are told one day this child might ask you where they came from and mm-hmm. you'll need to have answers for them. Right. So if they are not told they need to do all these things, then what you end up with is one, you may end up with people who would have not they make that decision while they given all the information. Yeah. But now they are in and they are hooked in there. Two, you would find people who would have made the decision and been better parents. Sure. Yeah. Right? But because you didn't prepare them well, then they are having problems. Right. Right. So it's it's so it's very important that uh when people are thinking about making a decision to adopt that there's some there's a platform where they receive information good and bad and let them make decisions that are well informed if they they may feel maybe we need to take some time back and prepare well because it's not what we expected well and good but if you do that then you end up with parents who are well prepared for the journey and that way you're able to minimize a lot of the issues that may come up later yeah because if the parent is beginning with the information they would be able to see signs and red flags very early on before things get out of hand mm-hmm. and so they are able to be one step ahead knowing what is going on sure what the, what do we need at this point but if they don't know anything something will just crop up one day or it has been there but they didn't notice they never thought it was anything right then one day they have a big problem in their hands and you know that kind of thing so it's it's very important that uh we be candid Right. the kind of information yeah. we tell people let's not uh, i get the temptation not to spoil the party <laughs> but it, it doesn't do any good right no. and, and with what you guys do at jabali foundation you guys bring some of that awareness some of that education you know so that so that they go in with their eyes open you know because what we it would be a disservice for us to assume and I'm speaking from experience as well, that it's it, it feels just exactly the same, you know, in, in that parenting space, you know, bringing in a child that has gone through traumatic experiences. Um, it's 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 significant for the parents and they and you do need to be candid with them, as you said, um, you know, post placement. You know, after the kid has come in, the parents love them, they're caring for them, but you know, there are inevitably challenges. What are some ways that you have seen within Kenya, um, either community-based organizations or other charities? I mean, is there anything, or is this just kind of the space that Jabali's, you know, trying to fill in as many cracks? What type of post-placement support is available or should become available um, to families that have um, that have welcomed a kid into their home through adoption. What does this look like on the ground? Because I can think here, you know, in Seattle, there's there's all sorts of things. There's government subsidies. There's um, there is uh, you know th- there's therapy. There's all sorts of different you know community services that can be provided. But but sometimes in you know places in other places those types of services maybe aren't available. So what do you see as far as that post-placement support, whether that's coming from the church in Kenya, whether that's coming from CBOs, whether that's coming from some other entity, um, what does that look like? And you know, ideally, what, what would it look like if it's not there? One, uh, in Kenya, once a parent goes through adoption and they go through the courts and they get their order and everything, 
they are simply thrown into the sea of other parents out there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. They are assumed you are a parent now like any other. So whatever the others are doing in dealing with their stuff, you go do the same. Yeah. And in fact, with the adoption agency, once you're done with the fostering period and you're placed with the child and you go to court, basically you and the agency have parted ways. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, so as a parent, you are left out there on your own to figure out what is going on and where to get help should you need any. So in terms of post-placement support or services, it's non-existent. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's not even provided in, in our law. Even the, the act that was passed a few weeks ago doesn't have anything like that. Right. I, I, I don't know exactly the reason why we don't have that, but I, I can only share some sentiments I once had with a former chairperson of the National Adoption Committee, which is the the policy and uh, regulating body for for adoptions in Kenya. And uh, she told me, look, the the idea of having specialized adoption support services is not good Mm. because uh, what you've done is that you've created something that stands out, Mm. right? So it will become a source of stigma for the parents, so they will never go there. Because if, 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 if they are seen going there, then everyone knows they are an adoptive parent. Uh-huh. Okay. And then and, and she gave me an example of a similar project that was done several years back at the height of HIV and AIDS. And they set up some clinics purely for HIV and AIDS uh, mm. patients. But no one showed up. Yeah. <laughs> because, yeah, because then you're outing yourself. Yeah, yeah. So kind of thing. Uh, so that one was one of the reasons I've heard from someone up there in the policy making process of their thinking around the thing. Another one that I got, um, no, this one was from a practitioner, very experienced practitioner, and we were we were actually trying to I was actually trying to have that put into law. Mm-hmm. And I remember the question she asked me: What is so special about? adoptees that they need specialized services that other children out there don't need. Mm-hmm. And I said, let's even assume they have, they have this nothing special, then why don't we have services for everyone who even adoptees can access? Sure. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> because yeah, even yeah. the others don't have the services. <laughs> right, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So why then don't we have services for everyone that are accessible to adoptees? Right? If, if you think just having the, them for adoptees and adoptive families is discriminatory, well, then have yeah, everyone. Yeah, just, just open up the floodgates. Yeah, for everyone. <laughs> and everyone will benefit at the end of the day. So, so there are those policy and, and legal issues around why that is uh, not uh, done. Three, and, and this is still unverified, it has to do with the adoptive parents themselves. Mm. Once they are done with the process, they have their child, they don't want something that will be reminding them that they are adoptive mm-hmm. parents. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And then so if they, they, they would rather go to a place for support, whether it's therapy or whatever, a place where there is no tag of mm-hmm. adoption. Right. Right. So there's a whole mixture of a lot of things going on, which I believe and is not perfect bearing in mind adoption is still a new topic in the country. People are still adjusting to the realities of what comes with that. 
Mm-hmm. And so basically, uh, that's the space we want to fill. Yeah. Uh, the space where um, they can get a platform to engage among themselves, peer to peer. A space where they can uh, get resources, learn about adoption and all that. Uh, parenting, yeah. stuff like that. You know, everything. Yeah. Right, a, a place where when adoptees get of age, they also get a, a space for themselves also to articulate their ideas because, by and large, adoption in our country is a conversation dominated by adoptive parents and practitioners and policy makers. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Often, the not adoptees don't feature anywhere in the picture, mm. and so our policies and our programming and everything really messes out a lot of perspectives that adoptees would give so they also need a space where they can uh, collaborate where they can engage with stakeholders as well and give their opinions give their ideas mm-hmm. run these programs i mean they, they they have the experience of living it so right they, they kind of see some nuances that someone from the outside may not see so but basically the idea is uh have an adoption environment that is that works for everyone Mm, yeah. That is efficient. That is that is that is proof from you know it's I mean it cannot be corrupted. It's well regulated because if you don't regulate adoption, then you end up even with domestic adoption, you still end up with the same mess as in inter-country adoption. Yeah, there is nothing really unique about the structure of inter-country adoption. That is different from domestic adoption. The only the only difference between the two is the amount of cash flow. <laughs> yeah, no kidding. But, but There's a difference. With, yeah, <laughs> but they flow within the same structure. So even domestic adoption has the capacity sure. to corrupt the system. Oh, for sure. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. Yeah. And so the, 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 it has to be well regulated. Yeah. It has to be well centralized. Otherwise, if you let it scatter everywhere, then we are going to end up with the same problems with domestic adoption. Right. Yeah, and, and I, I like what you put there, Simon. We have to figure out a system that works for everyone. And we do have to center the voice of children and adoptees um, because it's, it's, you know, it affects them more than anybody else. You know, we have to center their voices within this space and we have to build a system that, that works for everybody and, and, again, hopefully reaches the kids that need it the most. Um, so this is just so enlightening and and you know as our listeners are are hearing this you know conversation between simon and myself you know be thinking and even praying you know through what what are the implications of this because when we talk about alternative family care we want kids to be in permanent placement you know that's one of the things at one million home that you know we focus largely on reunification because that's where most of these kids could go Um, but at the same time there are some kids that are outliers that unfortunately um, because of the separation because of the trauma or because of a safety issue they're not able to reunify back with their family of origin and the best thing for them you know is adoption and um, so so i would just encourage our listeners as you hear simon as you hear about what this looks like as an indigenous movement you know within kenya both the good and the bad right um we're not going to pretend like you know similar to what you were just saying there, comparing intercountry adoption and and domestic adoption there are still uh, gaps there are still potential pitfalls um but we have to be working towards safe permanency for children and uh, in some 
and in many contexts that includes the alternative family care placement of adoption. So um, Simon, this has just been so good. We do have two questions that we ask all of our guests. Um, so uh, I just wanna uh, hear from you. I know that you are currently a, a doctoral student, so I'm gonna make the assumption that you are reading all sorts of really good stuff. So uh, we just have a couple questions that we, uh, that we ask all of our guests on Think Orphan. What have you read, watched, or listened to that has most impacted your thinking on how we can love orphaned and vulnerable children and families with excellence? You know, I've had this question for the past one week, and uh, I, I couldn't come up with an answer to this question, a specific <laughs> answer to this question, because uh, I think for me it has been a journey, uh, twists and turns, Sometimes I read something and I think, oh, this is it. Mm -hmm. Then tomorrow I read another and I'm like, this is it. <laughs> so, sure. so, so there's a whole lot of, uh, of, 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 of stuff and, that I've read and watched. So trying to think which one stands out. Oh my goodness. <laughs> uh, However much it stands out, all, all answers work. I think one of the, the things that I've, and this one is one of the last threads I've read, and uh, the book is called Infected Kin. I'm trying to remember the name of the author. She's uh, an, anthropolog an anthropologist, and uh, the book is based on some research she, she did in, uh, in Lesotho around uh, HIV and AIDS often. Hmm. And uh, the book is a quite an interesting one because being an ethnography, it takes a very local community level approach, but then ties down what is going on to the national, regional, and even global dynamics. Mm. So it's it's the one reason why I like the book is often the not uh, how we view caring for orphans sometimes is, is, is and I understand because of the nature of how organizations are, they have their scope, their, their mission, but there is always a situation whereby those who focus on the, on the global and the macro issues stay there, and those who work in, with communities stay there. Mm. But this, uh, so what was interesting about this book is how it integrates all those layers yeah. and shows how those impact on the day-to-day lives of people right because mm -hmm. these are communities she lived with to do her research and so you know sometimes we may look at the uncrc we may look at whatever and, and it looks like something up there that a child or a family in in a village in africa does not live with its reality mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. but often the note that very seemingly distant idea or concept has a way it shapes uh individuals down there mm. on their day-to-day -day lives yeah but we don't often see that yeah and so when we, we sit in hotels and conference rooms writing these roles we, we tend to miss out that reality of yeah. what is how, how does this look like when it gets to the ground right and and that's something that we talk about you know on the podcast regularly and and 
you know, thankfully we do have a lot of listeners that are on the ground and, and that's even part of what we want to do by bringing in people like you, other experts, other practitioners um, that can speak into these spaces so that we can see those things on the ground. So I'm going to, I'm going to look that one up. It was infected kin. Yeah. Okay. Is it, was it by Mary Ellen Block? Yeah. Ah, I found it. All right. I think it was a free download, actually. I was getting on Google Chrome while you were talking. Uh, we have friends in Lesotho, so shout out to them. All right. Um, what person has most impacted your thinking on how we can love orphan and vulnerable children with excellence? <laughs> this is another one. Oh, my goodness. I can, I can think of 100 people. <laughs> uh, let me try to think. Because, I mean, I've met wonderful people along the way. I mean, I, I came into this with no academic background in anything around these issues. And so most of my early work was a lot of learning. And so the, the, I worked with people who kind of shaped my thinking in ways that... But one person that I would say kind of stands out for me is when I began working at Charlie Family Focus, of course, Peter my former boss was an awesome guy. He kind of, he's a guy who gave me the space to start this. Yeah. So I worked with him for a couple of years and we were good friends, still are good friends. And we did quite some awesome work together. I mean, you know, kept the spirit up and he was quite an inspiration. The other person that I think, um, more from a technical perspective that was influential uh, was when we started working with Hope and Homes and Dr. Delia Pope was mm-hmm. uh, was the director for programs then and I think listening and working alongside her in those early years of my career really shaped uh, my thinking around uh, around how to care for children. Uh, he, I, I would say she impacted me maybe I would say ideologically in the way I think about care reform and stuff like that another thing that has now this is not someone but uh, graduate school has also kind of opened my eyes to things that I didn't see when I was inside because I was inside then I'm I'm out I come to graduate school and I began to see things as an outsider now and uh, thinking through them and, and, and interrogating them and uh, I've gained quite some insights that I don't think I would have if I didn't step out for a moment and right. look at things from the outside. And and of course, with graduate school, you know, that is what you're doing. You're thinking about stuff. So it tends to... I've really gotten some good, uh, deep insights about what is going on and what is not going on well, or what should be done and stuff like that. No, it's really, really good. And, and I would just, uh, you know, those those two answers, Peter and Delia, uh, friends of friends, friends of ours. We love those guys. Uh, Peter, you guys can hear him actually on episode 191, which was our special episode that we did with Francis Chan. Uh, and then Delia has been on the show, of course, as well uh, in episodes 51 and 52. So if you guys don't know those two individuals, they are uh, remarkable leaders within this space, both of them. So would definitely encourage you guys to go check that out. Uh, Simon, thank you so much for uh, being on the show with us today. Uh, this was fun getting to do it in person.
person. Uh, I know, I don't know if you do podcasts often, but for me, this was a first to do it live. So uh, this has been been really great and just appreciate you and, and the work that you do to support children and families. Oh, thank you so much, Brandon, for having me. I also appreciate the space and the time and the conversation you had is, I mean, talking about these things is always, you know, exciting and, you know, thank you so much. Thank you. We hope you've enjoyed today's Think Orphan podcast. For all the information in this week's podcast, please visit us at thinkorphan.com. You too can be part of the conversation. Send your questions to info at thinkorphan.com or join us on the Think Orphan Facebook page. Thanks for listening, and we hope you'll join us again on the next edition of Think Orphan.